That's probably not going to make the show. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm glad you liked my shirt, though. Nathan, I loved the questions that we got from the listeners the last time that we asked for questions. I think we should do that again. I completely agree. As we kind of trend towards the finale of the show, we definitely want to make sure that everyone feels like they've had a chance to hear us talk about what they are interested in hearing. Specific questions for us or design elements that maybe we haven't touched on as heavily over the course of the show. Design or production. To ask us a question or submit a topic for consideration, the best ways to do that are the design games community on Google Plus, or you can get in touch with me through the contact form on my website, ndpdesign.com, and those will get filed for the upcoming listener question episode. Look for links to both of those destinations in the show notes. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. Nathan, what do you want to talk about on the Design Games podcast this time? This time, I think we should talk about the specifics of some of the tools we use and how we think about generating our production processes in order to fulfill our designs. So at some point in the process of finishing your game, while this may also be in parallel with assembling your team or you know figuring out how you're going to get all the skills you need to do the thing, you're also executing the vision, right? Like you're, you're producing the object or the digital file or the collection of transmedia cooperative titles or whatever it is, but there's a thing that you have to produce. And that I think for a lot of us, there's a bit of a transition from mentally from I'm designing the game to I'm making the thing. And there's not necessarily a hard line, though for me, usually once I make that decision, I kind of stop designing, though every once in a while something in the production feeds back and then I have to make changes. But yeah, once once that mental switch happens and you're into producing the thing, then there are a lot of options for making that happen. And for a lot of us, you know, who are doing this as, you know, independent creators or or solo acts, we're in charge of the of choosing which options they are. And a lot of those are software options and a lot of those are the actual tools with which we make the thing a reality. And so we should talk about our interaction with those tools and maybe some nuts and bolts about what we use and how we think about our own processes. If we want to get fairly detailed in tools, yes. Among other things, I just successfully taught myself multiple PDF layer techniques. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that's like, so, you know, hey, you're never done. Yeah. But also is, was so much easier than I thought it was going to be. And mm -hmm. what was mostly was just finding out different ways to do it that didn't put too much extra effort on the user. But it had me just thinking about why did I think that was so hard? And mm -hmm. why is the institutional memory in the hobby of how to do stuff like that so bad? Mm -hmm. I can't go to people other small press people really get that information. You mean like for the final PDF, just having it in layers? or uh, Yeah, well, and then putting buttons in the text so that you can turn on and off DM information, stuff like that. Oh. Or turn off the color art for before mm. I print it. I, yeah, I mean, I usually set myself up so that it's all coming out of InDesign. I do that in InDesign, yeah. and then the PDF still has the functionality, but then the final buttons I do in, in Acrobat. I oh, see. so that there's buttons like on the actual text you're looking at as Correct. opposed to like the sidebar? Correct, because oh, okay. because what I've what it, what it turns out is that the way that Acrobat distills the PDF, or not distills actually, but you know, yeah. creates the PDF, those buttons 
apparently works with more PDF readers than the layer interface is consistent. Like huh. if, you, if you know, like I don't know how to do layers in Preview and Mac. I'm sure they're there. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they are. Yeah, a lot of other PDF readers just just don't. Yeah, yeah. But so if they're in the PDF itself, mm-hmm. the PDF reader often will honor what's going on hmm. because it's in the because it's part of the PDF. I've never even though the interface doesn't do it. Yeah, I've never even thought about doing that. Like I've just been like it it lives in the PDF and people need to be educated consumers about how to use the utilities. I like label them and you know they exist and everything and then i'm like if people want to use other pdf readers then they have to be okay with the functionality they lose that's by and large my position except that i think people who are not using some version of acrobat yeah are have made a choice already right like i think they're not use acrobat or to specifically use something else yeah yeah exactly (laughs) but putting a a button in the or a text link or whatever mm-hmm. it is in the PDF kind of neutralizes the whole issue yeah. when, it, when it works with other ones. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to have to find out. Is I, I have to find out what the third PDF reader is. Yeah. Because aside from Preview and Acrobat, I don't know what people are using. People like Goodreader is the one that oh, I sure. hear about for, the yeah, at mobile. Yeah. Nathan, what is the most recent lesson that you have learned, self-taught or otherwise, big or small, that comes to mind? Not I don't want to say has changed the way that you're doing production, but has maybe added to, whether it's a new tool or even just a shortcut. That's kind of a hard one just because I feel like there's always like little tiny things. Sure. Right? And also it kind of varies with, <laughs> for me, it varies with software updates. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because every so often, like for example, there was a recent... Uh, Adobe Creative Cloud update that introduced a new export dialog for Illustrator um, where you can export things in a bunch of different formats and resolutions at once. Oh, nice. Basically. I haven't seen this yet. Yeah, it's called export for screens. So you can take a thing that's on, you know, whatever your artboard is, and then there's a little dialog uh, where you just add formats. So you're like JPEG at 300 DPI, PNG, transparent background, like all this stuff. So all, can, all at once. Yeah, so you add all the options you want, and then you hit export, and then it exports them all. Oh, and they have little... I love it. Yeah, it, like it is good. It is still a little mysterious to me about some of how the things actually come out on the other end. Mm-hmm. Like, the numbers all look right, but then they don't look right to me compared to how I usually, or I used to do it. So I'm not sure if I don't understand some of the options or what. Uh, so there's a little bit of learning curve to it, but it is duplicating a workflow that I used to have about creating all the different formats of like a logo or whatever. So that also makes me re-examine that workflow and right. see if I have to do that differently or if I can just do the same thing. Cause I can kind of do the same thing I've always done just in parallel with this and use this sometimes in the other thing other times, uh, which is more button clicks, but I know exactly what I'm getting. So which is to say that idea of a, a thing that I've learned, sometimes it's relearning the, the tool that I already have because mm-hmm. the tool has changed. And sometimes it's finding out a new thing. You know, one of the, the things that yeah. I just, that I self-discovered, I traded in a bunch of old Apple hardware and I got a Wacom tablet and I'm relearning. I, I had had a tiny Wacom tablet a decade ago and I'm working with a medium-sized Intuos now and I love it. It's, it's great. And it's enabling me to do certain things that I could do but couldn't do very well with a mouse and of course to then do things that I just, I can't do with a mouse. Mm-hmm. But one of the things, of course, that's very helpful when you're using the stylus is the fact that you can change brush size with a hotkey and just scroll the brush up and down in size, as opposed to having to go up to the menu, mm-hmm. change the size, blah, blah, blah. But I find that without thinking about it, I use both or either approach, depending on where I am in a sketch or illustration, mm. that I will go up and change the brush size in the menu in the corner and the, using the slider when I need a second. Mm, yeah. 
when I when I'm looking at the piece and I'm like, okay, what is the next thing? Mm-hmm. What is the next step? What is the layer I'm going to move? You know, and I'm I'm contemplating when I know what I'm doing, and it's just like, okay, now it just needs like a it needs a crosshatch here or a contour there or whatever. Without thinking about it, I'll just hotkey it and change mm-hmm. the brush size. One of the things that got me thinking about it is 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 how often there are two or three roots to the same. Oh yeah. Solution in the in these tools, especially with the Adobe stuff. There's a learning curve, but the reason there's a learning curve is because there's so many different ways to do anything, and they they mesh with each other in different ways, right? right. And so uh, you brought up Hal. I've had this conversation with him before about how he's a he's a Photoshop guy, and I'm an Illustrator guy, right. and we literally do not understand how the other person can do all of their because we do the same kind of work i mean not page layout but uh graphic work and right, right. book covers and that kind of stuff and every time i've had to do anything like that in photoshop i'm just like i feel like i'm just like on a tiny boat in the middle of a vast ocean and i can't reach <laughs> any of the things that i need to reach and i'm and i know people feel that way about illustrator too and it's just like however your brain works and yep. whatever your kind of comfort level with ambiguity is, and, I guess. And sometimes which one you started with. Yeah, well, it's funny because I started with Photoshop. Oh, I actually wow. transitioned to Illustrator in school just because for, for like little one-off things and also for scalability, yeah, yeah, it just seemed to make a little more sense and I couldn't figure out how to do anything and then I kind of just like brute forced my way into the mindset and then I, now I can't even like I have to look everything up whenever I do anything in Photoshop because I just don't remember. Right. And also because the software has moved enough steps since the last time I used it with any regularity. It is better at doing things, but I don't know that it's better at doing things. So I do. <laughs> right. I'm trying to remember how to do it. And then I'm like, oh, there's this one button and that's how you do it now. Right. Yeah, I'm definitely more of a Photoshop person, although I've been working on Illustrator a lot in the last couple of years. I'm not better at it, but I am better at approaching it. Like, I don't do anything different, or rather, I should say, my end results with Illustrator are not a lot different, Mm -hmm. but it takes me about a third of the time now. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of that's part of attaining attaining skill and yeah. competence, right? Is not necessarily that the end product is visibly or meaningfully different or better. It just you're better at getting from zero to right. end product. Yeah. To me it's like when I go to Illustrator, I feel like I'm wearing one of those suits that you that you see the police wear mm-hmm. for attack dogs. The rest is oh, like the a big puffy the, suit. The big puffy suit. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I can see the I know what I want to do. And I know roughly what the buttons do, but I feel like I don't have the mobility mm-hmm. that I usually have in Photoshop. Yeah. And part of that, especially with the Wacom, is revealing all kinds of stuff in Photoshop. Oh, I'm sure. That is good. Sometimes just like where buttons are or how menus contain, different menus contain the same option, different mm-hmm. routes to the same thing. Yeah, it's been super helpful. One little tiny thing that I learned recently, and I think part of this is also just because you learn something doesn't mean that it's like obscure or difficult. And sometimes <laughs> you just have never looked, right? Yeah. And so I recently had cause to discover the, um, there's a tool in InDesign to rotate your page spreads on an individual basis. Really? Yeah, you can like do like a right click and I forget what it's called, but basically, so you have all your things and they're just whatever, eight and a half by 11 portrait. You know, you have some kind of some kind of artwork that is horizontally laid out and you're going to do it vertical, but you need to see it horizontal for laying some text over it or whatever. Uh-huh. You can actually, in the, the view panel, set just that page to rotate 90 degrees so that when you're scrolling through your pages, it shows up landscape. But the whole page? The whole page. Wow. The whole spread. But, no idea. but when you export or whatever, it's still your print settings or your whatever your settings are. It still exports correctly. <laughs> 
it's literally just changing how it's displaying it on your monitor. Right. So for those little tiny one-off things, it, it's this great little tool that I never had any cause to discover. And then when I did, it's one I was of like, those things you, that you you slide past to get to the tool you want. Right? Yeah, exactly. That of course they put in there. Because how many people also work? That's always that always gets me. Who? What one person knows everything that InDesign or Photoshop can do? And the answer is, I think seriously, nobody. Probably nobody. <laughs> and there's so much stuff in there because of course they they not only use all the software mm. with Creative Cloud, they have a lot of data on what we do with it. Oh, yeah. Like how long mm-hmm. it takes to accomplish things or how many people are doing it a certain way. But, or even just, I mean, I, I don't even actually mean by tracking, because I don't know what they track. But I just mean the fact that it's easier to file bug reports and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And crash reports crash and all reports that stuff. Crash reports and everything, yeah. Mm-hmm. But so that they can see, for example, we have a, a feature that lets you turn just the, just the look of the visual of the display of the page. Nobody's using it. We should probably put that somewhere that people yeah, know how to do it. I have no idea if it's new. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't either. Like, probably not. It seems like one of those things that's probably always been there. There's a little icon that shows up and everything to like let you know that this has been rotated, like all the stuff. It's just called Rotate View, I think, or something like that. It's another thing. A lot of the names are yeah. mysterious because words have different meanings in different contexts. Yeah. Um, just even across the three. Right. What I think of as the three. The, the big three, if you Publishing, will. yeah. We're talking about Adobe tools because they're the ones that we use, but I think this idea applies to any tool that you're using, including like I recently found out that I can use little draw objects in Google Docs, which I know people Mm -hmm. know about and have done forever, but I've never done it before. And then I wanted to make a little chart in a Google Doc that I was doing, and I was like how do I do this? This has to be possible. And then I found the menu and I did my little thing. Sometimes it it opens up new possibilities, right? When you like discover a Mm -hmm. new ability of the tool that you're using, which is good earlier in design. But I think when you're in a production mode, sometimes you have to be like, oh, that exists. I will play with it later, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> if the goal is to get a thing complete and at the door. The, the, the other thing that I find that it helps for me, and here's an example. One of the first things that I was taught when I started freelancing as a writer, that I was totally different from how I was laying stuff out at home, was how to actually set up text for a table. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of those things that I'm going to say because it's institutional knowledge everybody should know. You use one tab. Mm. It will look erratic in the Word doc or the Google doc. Yep. Don't worry about it. Nope use one tab between columns. So even if column one, row one, has 13 characters and the next row has two characters, you will use one tab to indicate the start of a new column. Now that means that the text of column two is going to be not remotely atop of each other because one of them is to the right of 13 characters and one of them is to the right of two characters. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about it. The tabs are what everything else is going to use to find out what the table looks like. And one of the ways to teach yourself that is in Google Docs, actually, is to go ahead and tab stuff out like that so that you just use one tab and then you can make a table out of it. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that because it just counts the tabs that the word processing documents and then later your InDesign and stuff can can do that. And one of the things that that taught me to deal with, and still I learned this lesson over and over again, is how to design beyond worry or fear, which is to say, I know that it looks wonky, but I also know because it is now proven technology that that is correct, that I have that down, Mm -hmm. that I'm not going to be in trouble with my editor or the audience or whatever, or the software later on. I'm not creating a problem for myself or somebody else in production later on by leaving it like that because it's been clearly communicated to me. This is the correct way to do it. And by correct, I should say, and this is going to be important, I think, for all of of the designers that we're talking to who do this stuff 
for themselves. The way that one company does it is not necessarily the way that another company does it, and neither company is necessarily right or wrong. And everybody is kind of always developing a house style, whether you're a one-person operation mm -hmm. or a 50-person operation. Yeah. And having a house style is fine because you have a system. But don't assume that your system is everybody else's system or that everybody else's system is based on fallacy. Right. It may be based on habit. It may be based on the software they learn. It may be based on circumstance. But it doesn't mean that they're crazy. It doesn't mean that they're wrong about it. Mm -hmm. And neither does it mean that you're wrong if you're doing it differently than the way that you hear that your favorite designer yeah. is doing it on G+. I I think that the thing to think about on this point in particular is that the act of putting your thing together, the act of production, is partly going to be you solving visual problems and solving format problems and stuff like that. But it's also going to be you putting together your own house style, yeah. as you say, uh, or your own workflow or your own proto workflow mm -hmm. or your own system for doing this again. And that's something that I think you can really gain a lot of value out of if you do mindfully. Mm -hmm. So even if you're doing your, your very first three-page PDF for drive-through and you're going to do, do it for pay what you want and you know just see how it does or whatever, the system that you put in place for making that happen is the groundwork for the next system. And you can learn from doing it like, wow, that was, for whatever reason, wow, that was really painful. I need to figure out a better way to do this. <laughs> right. That's one lesson. And it gives you the, the, the language to start looking for other tools or how to, how to search for, you know, solutions to this problem you had. Yeah. Or you went through it and it was really easy. And then next time you're going to do a thing, it's going to be a 30-page thing. And that workflow is the base of it. But you need to adapt it because now it's a new project and it has larger page count and it has more as art or whatever. You need to evolve. Yeah, full page equipment tables, whatever it is you got yourself into. Right, yeah. what, whatever whatever <laughs> thorny hedges you've, you've angled yourself into. But yeah, I guess the, the, the point is is being mindful about the, the processes that you're putting into place and also open-minded to changing them. Yeah. Um, when you're feeling a, a pain point in your process or when you hear about something, for example, as you were talking about the idea of putting buttons or text links in the body of a PDF to turn layers on and off as mm -hmm. opposed to living in the sidebar in Adobe Acrobat or Adobe Reader. I'm like, oh, I just hadn't thought about that idea of putting it a text link in the in the body text that the person's reading. Obvious, like it is an obvious idea now that you've brought it up to me. Right, right. But I just neither have I seen it in a product or been asked to do it or just thought about it myself. Because I'm so used to a workflow where I kind of automate all that stuff into the sidebar tool. Right. To be clear, by the way, uh, it was very easy to do because Adobe either wants people to do that or knows people want to do that. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those things where it was essentially it's it's in the actions menu for hyperlinks mm -hmm. is reveal layers. I'm like, show reveal layers. I'm like, oh, like it's been, it's right it's in front right of there. us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, they're way ahead of us in that area. Mm -hmm. But and I'm sure, and what I want to know, by the way, because this goes to the institutional knowledge question, where are the PDFs that that is, that that was commonplace in that we never saw them? Oh yeah. Is it serious engineering documents for like aer right. aeronautics companies yeah, or something? Like what industry yeah. is using those things? Um, every yeah. day. Mm -hmm. And not just, not just that, but, but, and how did we not, uh, we never saw them. <laughs> yeah. Or I want to do more of that. Or because of how the gaming industry works, like the six to 12 people that would have been able to put that in a PDF where it gets out to a wide enough distribution that right. a lot of people have seen it didn't see it. Or maybe just both of us have missed it and the people listening are like, yeah, may, yeah. Are like hey, you why haven't you looked at it? This company's been doing this for two years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is 100% possible. So I, I, I dare say even likely. <laughs> yes. So if you do this and you're listening, we're not trying to to erase your contribution. We just literally have missed it until now. Yeah. Which is on us, not on you. Yes. <laughs>
I should also say the um, the Mac inherent stuff, your numbers, your pages, pages can produce pretty attractive PDFs mm -hmm. on its own, certainly for kind of starter stuff. If, if you're coming in and you don't want to obviously pay for any of the Adobe stuff, which is completely understandable. If you come in and you don't, at the beginning to experiment, you don't want to pay for that stuff. You don't want to learn four pieces of software. You can make for for three page, five page, 10 page, you know, starter stuff, very attractive, very functional uh, reliable PDFs from lots of other softwares and, and programs and apps right. and stuff. So Pages is a great um, numbers behaves well with Pages. They interact nicely. Mm -hmm. There are there are also open source available free tools that have their own learning curves, but yeah. you know fill in these holes like Scribus for mm. for layout or for um, for vector work, GIMP, GIMP uh, right for like visual you know for Photoshopy, Illustratory stuff, but also like LibreOffice and OpenOffice for open source word processing that, again, can generate a perfectly cromulent, clean, basic PDF with basic functionality. I have never once had a, a book that came out of OpenOffice go into InDesign correctly, just FYI. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying I haven't. It's my, part of that is my bad luck. Right. <laughs> but Yeah, I prefer uh, LibreOffice or LibreOffice. I don't know. It's a different fork of, right. of it, and it is much more stable for me. Cool. OpenOffice also gave me a lot of problems back in the day, and right. then I transitioned to LibreOffice, and it seems fine. Cool. That's just me. But yeah, again, it depends on your setup. It depends on... And for all I know, OpenOffice may go describe as great. Yeah. Right? So yeah, you may have lots of different solutions for this stuff. But. Mm -hmm. One of the first things that I point out to Google is, and I always get Daniel Solis's name wrong when I say it because I've heard it said so many different ways, but Daniel Solis, S-O-L-I-S, uh, Google his data merge tutorial mm -hmm. at his website. It's amazing. That's great. Because yeah. data merge is already an amazing technology, mm -hmm. but he does a great job of showing not just why it's amazing for games, but why it is so much more accessible and achievable than it might seem if you just read, you know, dry tutorials on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a tool that I've been using a lot more of in the last 18 months, partly because he made me aware of his existence, basically. And then just, you know, for, for individual projects where it was applicable, I was able to yeah. actually use it. And that's how I learn. Like it's, I usually don't get much out of just trying a thing out without any actual goal and oh, that yeah. I need to get to. Me neither. I usually learn by being like, I need to get to this thing. How do I get there the most efficiently or, or preserving, you know, all the other elements I need to preserve. Right. And yeah, that emerges great. It, it can be tricky. Yes. But it's worth getting your head around. Definitely. Uh, especially if you're working on anything like a card game or something where you have a lot of data and then you have a lot of outputs and you don't want to have to go through every single thing to change it if you change one thing in the data set. Right? Uh, for example, so I will sometimes, to reverse a little bit actually what we, uh, of what we just said because it's how I did data merge, but it's generally right, I learn how to solve a problem that I have, yeah. not how to solve a problem that I don't have. Correct. Yes. Um, but I, every once in a while with data merge, I was kind of like, okay, so what problems do I have that this will solve that I don't yet see it will solve? And so I've done that where I say, I, I know I can put this to use somewhere because I have all these problems I don't have answers for yet. Right. <laughs> Let me see what bolts will fit this wrench. Mm -hmm. But with data merge is so great for card games, like you say, and things of that ilk, tiles and all kinds of stuff. Picture a card game that has a square piece of art, flavor text and rules text. If you want to change the way that flavor text looks in your game without having to go through 60 cards by hand. Obviously, you change the styles. And there's a thing about styles I'll talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. 
if you want to change the content of a bunch of cards and you want to have a strong internal memory in your process as to what version is which and you don't want to go in and cut and paste 60 cards, Data Merge lets you take information from a spreadsheet that is your central source of all that information. And when you update the spreadsheet, you then just essentially click to update the cards and the cards will self-update that mm -hmm. field. It populates the cards with information from the spreadsheet. So you would say flavor text is column C, rules text is column B, the art links and their file names are all in column A. And you can swap stuff out, including things like if you have icons, right, you can just tell it mm -hmm. this one uses icon, you know, B.jpg or whatever. And you can already kind of see how this is much faster than, for example, having to check your spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, copy and paste and copy from and paste. 60 cells on a spreadsheet to <laughs> right. 60 text fields in InDesign. Yeah, yeah, which is a nightmare. Yeah. I, that, back in the day, that's which how we did it. What it's I a have nightmare. Done. Yeah, yeah. So I've done it too. <laughs> yeah. It's, oh, it's awful. It's, yeah, it's no fun. Things like that and running headers, by the way, are a great thing to learn the technology for. But one of the things I was going to say with, with styles, by the way, so that we're not always talking about, so I'm not only talking about Adobe, is styles are, of course, great technology because they communicate from software to software very successfully when they do, which is, um, you know, the paragraph styles change. I say a whole paragraph, but we use them for headers and such, of course, all the time. Mm -hmm. a, paragraph a paragraph is just delineated by a hard return, a hard return at the end. So yeah. that can be a word, a sentence, a, an actual right. paragraph, whatever. Whereas a character style are things um, like, when you know you want all book titles to look a certain way, all emphasis, not necessarily italics, because emphasis per book might be done differently. When you want monster stats to be sans serif and everything else to be serif, these kinds of things, uh, you can go in and change the style. And not only will it change the style and therefore update everything in that style in the document, and that's this is true for Google Docs, this is true for Word, this is true for InDesign, but styles export more reliably than, say, just making something italics yep. in a font. So that when you change the style and then send it from Word or Google Docs to InDesign, InDesign says, ah, a style that tells me that this should be italics and this should be bold and this should be whatever. Mm -hmm. I will honor that as best as I can. And and InDesign is good, for example, as are, uh, I'm told, the various other layout softwares that are that are strong layout softwares are good at reporting right. why, when and why it is confused. An example of this that was a problem for me is I started using Scrivener and Scrivener, I, this may be different now because I'm, I'm, I think, at least one, maybe two versions out of date with Scrivener because of this. Scrivener styles are not actually styles. They don't export as styles. They call them styles. Mm -hmm. And they behave pretty much like styles. If you try to export from Scrivener, I have to, I have to send it from Scrivener to Word, redress everything, and then send it to InDesign. Mm -hmm. Because InDesign can't read Scrivener. The, the Scrivener quote-unquote yeah. styles. Um, similarly exporting from pages to InDesign does not work correctly. Or mm -hmm. it may again now, but it didn't before. And so one of the reasons I bring this up is so that one of the reasons that I use Word still, or again, and InDesign um, are because I know how they will interact. Mm -hmm. And it reduces the number of steps that I have right. for that process. So you've, you have a workflow, yeah. right? Yeah. And you are, and it's reliable. So right. when you're getting into a new project, into the production phase of a new project, not only have you already done a lot of the initial writing in Word with styles because you know how it works and you know that later on you'll be able to use that that functionality correctly. Once you get into the production phase and you're exporting and bringing it in InDesign and all that stuff, it just works because you already yeah, knew I, that it I don't would. have to solve the, the problem every project. Right? Exactly. As opposed to every project relearning, oh, right, Scrivener isn't going to export to InDesign correctly. Right. You know, which would be kind of putting a, a, a hurdle in front of yourself that this is the way that you've chosen to avoid that hurdle. Well, right. you know, that doesn't mean that's the only way. No, not at all. There's there's plenty of other reasons to use Scrivener that maybe are worth that, or Scrivener talks maybe talks to something else better right. than it does to InDesign, so you use that. The, so that's all just an example of through experience 
experience, you've given your, you, you've created a process where the problems that you need to solve are going to be new problems for the project. They're not going to be problems about the very process that you're using to execute the project. Right, exactly. The language that I like to use is every project will have problems and every project seeks to accomplish things. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if in order to accomplish the project, you have to solve the same problems over and over again, you have to reaccomplish stuff. Mm -hmm. If you say, I've accomplished, I have learned how to do running headers, how to make page numbers work the way I want them to, how to do data merge. I don't have to relearn that every time. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to do it as a four-step process. I have learned that. So I can accomplish new things with a new project and your skill set gets broader and broader right. and broader as you learn stuff, as opposed to spending the same number of hours that you have on each project doing the mm -hmm. same repetitive workflow. Bringing this back into the earlier design process, once you have mastered a new tool or created a, a workflow that you know works, then you can design with that in mind, yeah. right? Like this is kind of what's happened with me. Once I kind of got my head around data merge, it was for a freelance project actually, but it was for a, a relatively small sized project that kind of opened the door to me to saying, oh, so maybe I should work on some more card-based projects right. because now I know how to execute them in a way that isn't me smashing my head against the wall every time I want to make a tiny change, <laughs> right. which isn't necessarily the barrier that kept me from doing that. But the combination of you know the accessibility of print-on-demand card availability, the suitedness of some card stuff for some projects I was working on, and the technical knowledge of doing it in a relatively painless manner. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, I'm like adding card projects to my catalog because those problems have all gotten solved enough to where they're surmountable now. Yeah, they're surmountable and now I can concentrate on the actual design of the thing yeah. to make it, you know, make it good. I love the process, the thinking, because it's totally true that you're talking about, which is how technology or the tools that you have open up new design options. Mm -hmm. Like the way that once suddenly once cards are surmountable, we see opportunities for cards to be possible all over the place. And then we can start seeing new ways to make cards essential to a game where before mm -hmm. we might have made them well so if you've got a deck of cards you can use them but right. you don't you don't need them as the barriers lower both to design and to access for creating and for getting and playing with cards mm -hmm. i wonder to for example it's brought up a lot but i haven't seen it happen yet really but when what 3d printing will do for things like dice mm -hmm. and, and minis and tokens and stuff like that but all these kind of production elements serve a metaphorical purpose for just the tools that we have access to because to me it's the same like like I was saying with tables is that I was would avoid games that had complex tables Mm -hmm. Not as a player, but as a designer, because I would be like, because right, I know I'm going to design it, I'm going to lay it out myself. Laying it out is a pain, yes, yeah. But um, yeah, once you figure out, A, the setup step of, you know, tabs and spaces, however you set it up, yeah. but then also table styles, which is right, its own little beast, much faster, yeah. but it makes everything, yeah, it makes it much more functional. <laughs> and for me, I went through that phase where once I discovered, and this was way back when, before I was doing anything mm -hmm. for sale, but was uh, with like dot matrix printers and stuff, but you know, when fonts were new and cheap, mm -hmm. I'd be like, well, I, then everything gets its own damn font. No, yeah. don't. I mean, I mean, somebody's going to prove me wrong. That's great. By all means, prove me wrong. But my, my, my general policy is don't do that. Yeah. Go ahead and pick two or three fonts for your book and you're all set. But it's that same kind of ex that, that notion that, that is easy to understand, right? Is that once you realize how easy it is to change headers or to, or to pick a font that really exemplifies the game, then even those little solutions, you start getting ideas and you start thinking about how it's, the product's going to seem to the end user. Right. And you start having in common with the end user an actual finite vision, a, a fixed vision, which is it's going to be ornate or it's going to be sleek or it's going to be crisp and modern or it's going to be right. And, and you, you learn different ways that you have to communicate with your audience and the players mm. without necessarily 
having to state everything overtly or take up a whole bunch of time and space, and by which I don't just mean players' time and space on the page, but how many hours is it going to take you to do a 30-page book? As that number comes down, then suddenly you say, well, with the same amount of time for the same amount of money, I can do a 45-page book, so I'm going to do that. Or I find that my games play better if I restrain myself. I'm going to do 15-page books, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Yeah, that's the idea of efficiency and productiveness. How How do you use your time most efficiently? How do you use your time best? And I think that there's a little bit of a trap in the idea of trying to like wring every moment of productiveness out of your time, right? As we've talked about, the design process itself, you need to give yourself the room to make mistakes and fail and go in the wrong direction so that you can find out the limits and find out where you really want to go and then come back, right? And that is also true in production, but I think there is an arc to it where as you establish a workflow, solve the problems that are going to come up every time so that you can concentrate on new problems and all that stuff, right. you you end up, part of the, the, the side effect of that is you spend your time more efficiently and you can do the same amount of work in less time. You can generate a 45-page book in the same amount of time it used to make, you used to make a 30-page book, which then gives you a new opportunity, right? Exactly. Do you then continue down that path? Do you see like if I spend 30 hours, what's the longest page count book I can execute in that amount of time? Or do you go in a different direction and say, okay, now that I know I can do this in this amount of time, what happens if I spend that 30 hours on a short book? Right. Right. It gives you a lot of choices, a, a new new options. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that every choice is right for every game that you're going to make is going to yeah. benefit from every option you have. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes not using a thing is the right choice. Right. But it, yeah, it enables you to, to make more experiments and make more mistakes in the same time without necessarily mm-hmm. having them all slow down or add drag to a product. Right. Yeah. Because that's, yeah, that's the thing. You, when you know you can do a thing in one way, you can take a risk doing it another way. And then if you fail, you can back it up and, and still do the thing the first way. Right. But one of the benefits of this kind of mindfulness about your process is giving yourself the ability to fail on an experiment without yeah. totally screwing up your, your deadline or your finished product. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider supporting us at Patreon so that we can continue to bring these episodes to you. You can find Will on Patreon at patreon.com slash wordwill. And you can find Nathan on Patreon at patreon.com slash ndpauletta. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...